0: Today, on Bread for the Broken, with James Grizzle, pastor of Calvary Chapel, Galveston. Bread for the broken. Those
1: who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, right? So if you're controlled by your flesh, you're going to be constantly thinking fleshly things. So if you notice, in your thought life, if it's progressively becoming more and more fleshly, that's a wake-up call. I'm off track. I'm off track. Those who are dominated by sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind
0: leads to death. As Christians, we aren't immune to sin. Just like everyone else, we deal with mistakes that bring us down into the depths of despair. But what do we get out of it? In today's message, Pastor James wants you to know that if you're still thinking about your sin, then you're focused on the world and not on God. On this side of eternity, it's impossible to get away from the effects of sin and flesh. However, when we keep our eyes on Jesus, he allows us to overcome sin and flesh and do what's right. Now, here's Pastor James in the book of Esther, chapter 3, with today's edition of Bread for the Broken.
1: We had uh, Esther chapter 1, big beauty pageant, Queen Vashti. She got dethroned, right? She got booted out because she didn't want to submit to the king and his demand of uh, really just asking her to expose herself to all these drunken fools, right, at this party they were having. And so she gets booted out because the other drunken fools at this party, week-long party, don't want their wives following in Vashti's footsteps in this great rebellion that could happen, right? So they made a law that all wives must submit to pretty much every demand of their husband. That was chapter one. Chapter two, Xerxes, that's who we believe this is, Ahasuerus or Xerxes, um, goes off and he, he suffers two military defeats and comes back broken and broke, and uh, his prides and all that good stuff, but he also doesn't have a special queen anymore. He misses Vashti. So they do this uh, Persia beauty contest, and out of the 127 provinces, they find one bright and shining star, and her name is Esther, and she wins. And I don't know if she wins wins, but she won the contest, right? She seems like she kind of lost to me, honestly, but, um, but God's hand was in that, and she gets placed in this position. Now she's the queen. And so we see how the Lord was with her and directing, you know, all this stuff. I mean, he's not in the book of Esther, so to speak. His name, God, is not written. It's not in the book of Esther at all. But his fingerprints are all over the story. So we see that we're, we're introduced to Esther. We're also introduced to her cousin named Mordecai or Mordecai, I guess is how you're properly supposed to pronounce it, but again, Mordecai sounds right to me. He takes care of Esther. He adopted her as his own daughter, and she. so now she goes off to be in the king's palace. He gets promoted. Now he works with the king, okay? So that's kind of where we we left off. There was an assassination plot, and Mordecai heard of it, told Esther. Esther told King Xerxes. She gave all the credit to Mordecai, and The king was saved and these two executioners were executed themselves. And King Xerxes forgets to reward Mordecai or maybe God pushed pause on that so that the time of the reward would happen at the right time. Now some years pass between chapter 2 and chapter 3. It says in verse 1, sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman. Oh, Haman, he's the bad guy of the story, right? At Purim, when they celebrate this, anytime his name is mentioned or when they put on the play and all that stuff, the children always boo when his name is mentioned. It's really a cool thing. That'll just be with you forever. So anytime you hear the story, you're just always going to think of that guy. Um, so you're welcome. But he's the son of uh, Hamadatha, right? The Agites. Or Agagite, however you say that. What's fascinating about these Agagites is that it is who they are connected to genealogically. They are part of the Am- Amalekites. This is major. This is absolute major. So I'm going to camp out here for a second and then we'll, we'll cruise through some verses. But we can't go too far without addressing who this guy is and where he comes from. The Amalekites are a picture of the flesh. And what I mean by the flesh is not your literal skin, flesh. I'm talking about this flesh, this sin nature within you that is always battling between the spirit and the flesh. Read the book of Romans. It's all about it. It's a pretty cool book, right? Amalekites always represent the flesh, always represented the flesh. And in fact, in Exodus chapter 17, we have the story of Israel going to battle against the Amalekites. They harassed Israel when they were coming through, you know, on their way to the promised land. But you have Aaron and her holding up the arms of Moses. And anytime his arms lowered, they would, the Israelites would start losing the battle. But when his arms were held up, they had victory over the flesh. Right? So they're on a mountaintop overlooking this battle scene. Now we don't first meet the Amalekites here. We actually meet them back in the book of Genesis. Amalek was a descendant of Esau. So you have Esau, you got Jacob, and there was a contention that was between the two, okay? So you go all the way back into there. I think it's um, Genesis 14, I believe, is where the first reference is. But we really see these guys in the book of Exodus when Israel is coming out of captivity, going to the promised land, and then the Amalekites show up, and they're the first ones to harass them. Does this sound familiar to you in your walk with Jesus? You get rescued from slavery, and what's the first thing to battle against you? Your flesh. Well, this was, a go- this was going to be a common problem for Israel, because God even told them, he's like, look, you need to destroy the Amalekites. Obliterate them. You have to deal with them, because if you don't deal with them, they will always be harassing you. 1 Samuel 15, King Saul goes off to battle against the Amalekites. And he gains victory over the Amalekites. And he is instructed to just kill them all. And don't even take the plunder. Don't even take the spoils. Like, keep nothing. So Saul has this great idea of like, well, we're going to save the best. And uh, what's my justification for doing that? Well, we'll dedicate it to the Lord. And then Samuel, who's the prophet at that point in time, walks up and he's like, Saul, do you honor what God said? Did you do what God told you to do? And he's like, absolutely. He's like, oh, really? What's all that noise? What's all that livestock I hear? The cows and the sheep and all the, why do I hear them? He's like, oh, well, we saved them because we felt that we should dedicate those to God. And Samuel says, no, you disobeyed God. He told you to get rid of it all. And it wasn't really about worshiping God. It was never about worshiping God for Saul. It was never. It was all about himself. And then he, he saved uh, the king, Agag um, is his name. That's where you get the Agagites, I guess is how you say that. He didn't kill him. And so that king, who's the king of the Amalekites, ends up having an offspring, a son. And the line is continued until you get to Esther chapter 3. And then the Amalekites show back up. But this will be the last time. And Esther, this would be the last time you ever hear of the Amalekites. But it, it's it's really cool when you look at that story and you go back into Exodus and then you see and then into 1 Samuel 15 of just how, man, if this illustrates the flesh the flesh, if we let any little bit of it survive, I'm going to promise you one thing. It will come back to haunt you. It does all the time. That's why we have to Romans chapter eight, you know, Romans Romans chapter six, I'm sorry. Read that whole chapter. It's beautiful, but you have to reckon yourself dead. Crucified with Christ. I'm gonna I'll read you some other cross references here. We're doing a little bit of jumping around at the beginning, but like I said, we're gonna Crucible, a lot of this narrative because it just, the story allows for it. Galatians 5.24, this is maybe something of a, a scripture that you're very familiar with. I don't, you should be. If you're not, you need to highlight this one or put a star by it. But 5.24 says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature, aka the flesh. They've uh, They've nailed these things to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not be conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. Um, so that's a tremendous chapter from Galatians chapter 5, speaking of the fruits of the Spirit, but also the fruits of, well, the flesh, okay? But we are to crucify the flesh, is what Paul told to the church of Galatia there. That whole Galatians chapter 5, it's, an, it's another just a beautiful chapter that if you find yourself struggling with the flesh, like giving in and all that stuff, camp out in Galatians chapter five, right? Just camp out, spend, a, spend a, you know, a whole day or a week there just meditating on those scriptures. The other one I would encourage you to camp out in and let me get here. Romans chapter eight, beautiful chapter, but Romans eight verses five through nine say this. And this is again, just concerning our, our fleshly nature and what we're supposed to deal with it, how we're to deal with this. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, right? So if you're controlled by your flesh, you're going to be constantly thinking fleshly things. So if you notice in your thought life, if it's progressively becoming more and more fleshly, that's a wake-up call. I'm off track. I'm off track. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit Think about things that please the spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. Don't give into it. Don't make room for the Amalekite within your life or within your body, right? Deal with the flesh. Don't let it, don't give it any brain space. So don't let it control your mind. It'll lead to death. But letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always, always, always hostile to God. The Amalekites were a problem with Israel from the very beginning. Why? Because they were hostile towards God. Amalek, why? Why, why? why was that such an issue? Amalek wanted nothing to do with God. So you have a whole nation that comes from this man, and they follow in his footsteps, and they want nothing to do with God. They were the first ones, remember, to confront Israel when they heard that they were released from Egypt and headed back to the promised land. Your flesh is always going to do that. Okay, that's always hostile to God. It never did obey God's law, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. So be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Be set free. And here's Paul's word to to these believers in Rome and to you and I today. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. Amen to that. That's the truth we need to hold on to. And that's what we we have to realize. Because if you just stop before that, you're like, oh man, that sounds like it's all up to me. And uh, listen, I've tried and i failed many times, right? But no, no, you're not controlled by the, your sinful nature. You're controlled by the spirit if you have the spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. And Christ lives in you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. That's who dwells inside of you. And greater is he in you than he who is in the world, right? And there, there are enemies that we face, for sure. And, you know, there's, the flesh is one of those enemies. But... You have the greatest asset ever. It's the Holy Spirit living inside of you. So you don't have to be controlled by the flesh. You just need to surrender. You and I need to surrender daily to the Holy Spirit. Because we believe the Holy Spirit's a real person. <laughs> we really, because if you don't believe he's a real person, then my goodness, what, what are you doing? I can't even imagine living this life without a real Holy Spirit who can be grieved. Because people can be grieved spirits and essences and things like that. They can't be grieved. The real people can be grieved. and The Holy Spirit can be grieved. He can be lied to. Read the book of Acts, right? We know that. He can be lied to and all that stuff. But we're controlled by the Holy Spirit. You're filled with the Holy Spirit so you can say no to the flesh. But this story, it just represents that one little compromise from King Saul leads to almost the destruction of these Jews in Persia, 60-some-odd thousand Jews, could be more. So that's who we're dealing with. That's the bad guy. He falls in line with some other historical bad guys, ones who wanted the Jews wiped out. We know uh, Antiochus Epiphanes wanted the Jews eliminated. He wanted them all killed. More modern times, uh, we know Hitler. Hitler wanted the Jews done away with right and and these guys are all on the same level the antichrist will want the jews eliminated we know that there have been some leaders of middle eastern countries and um and specifically of iran who want israel wiped off the face of the map and they want the jews decimated the all these guys fall in line and they're all on the same level. And it's just, it's fascinating. Here's one. He gets promoted in King Xerxes' palace. Why he gets promoted, we have no idea. He probably schemed his way into it. That's what we, that's what we understand, though. So... He gets promoted over all the nobles, back to verse 1. I didn't even get out of verse 1. How about that? Um, Making him the most powerful official in the empire, second only to King Xerxes. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for so so the king had commanded. So this is a command from from the king. When Haman goes by, you have to bow down. Everybody's like, fine. Most people probably don't even like this dude. He's one of those guys, I assume. You saw the picture, right? Like, that's, that's, <laughs> he's that guy, okay? So he's walking by. You're going to be like, I don't want to bow down to that guy. I'm not bound down to that guy. And I appreciate within our story, there is a guy who's like that. He's like, I don't think so. I'm not bound down to you. Probably because of the character that's represented. But also, he's holding true to what what the Jews had learned from the book of Deuteronomy and you know, not bowing down to any idol. But they would also sometimes equate that to officials. Because we also know, and probably what's happening with Haman is he probably thinks he's somewhat of a god. OK? We know Xerxes thought that of himself. Haman is probably thinking the same thing and probably is demanding what? It's not, it's not respect he's looking for. It's, it's reverence. It's worship. OK? They're not like, oh, yeah, you're my, you're my boss. I'm going to bow down to you. And he's like, no, 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 you bow down to me because, well, I'm godlike. is probably what's happening. And that's what Mordecai's picking up on because he's, he's just not going to bow down. It says, but Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. That's pretty admirable. You're like, wait a minute. Shouldn't he respect him? You don't have to respect the person. You can respect the position. It doesn't always mean you've got to respect the person okay now that's very that's that's a good word for us today (laughs) because they're like yeah um there's some offices that are that the office itself is deserving of respect unfortunately you get some people occupying those offices who don't deserve any respect so you differentiate between the two mordecai's like i don't think so not bowing down And i'm like yes Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> that's my guy. That's the guy I can hang out with. That's the guy I can. Yeah, I'd be right there with him. I'd be like, no, no, keep keep moving, Haman, keep walking, dude. Yeah, I just no respect for this guy at all. Verse three says the palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, "Why are you disobeying the king's command?" They spoke to him day after day, but still he refused to comply with the order. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct since Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. So Mordecai explains to them, like, I'm not going to bow down to this guy, that I shouldn't bow down to this guy. And so they're like, all right, well, let's see how that flies with Haman, right? And so they found out this interesting little tidbit of information. I don't know how they didn't know he was was already a Jew, but maybe they just assumed. Verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage, He learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews, all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes, 127 provinces. So he's like, he learns that Mordecai is a Jew and he's like, you know what? I could kill this guy. And he probably had the authority to do whatever he wanted to, to Mordecai. But he's like, no, but that's not good enough. This dude has wounded my pride. So what he's deserving of is for all the Jews to be killed. That's how you know you're dealing with a madman. That's how you know you're dealing with, this dude's like psychotic. He's crazy. Like, he's like, no, it's not enough for us to punish one. Let's punish them all, okay? Obviously, uh, there's somebody else kind of like pulling some strings behind the scene as well. And he's, his, name is, his name is Satan, and I can tell you, he is probably right there behind Mordecai, or not Mordecai, but Haman, just whispering in his ear like, yeah, get them all. Get them all. Why? Well, because from the very beginning, Satan's been trying to eliminate the seed from the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. We, we learned that, all right? Satan doesn't want the Messiah to show up. So if you don't want the Messiah to show up and you know he's going to be born Jew, well, then your, your best case scenario is to eliminate all Jews, He's just killed them all. Although there is a remnant that lives in Jerusalem, but I don't, who knows what their plan was for that. Maybe he's trying to cover these guys in Persia, but then also those in Jerusalem. It's, also, it's the same motivation Antiochus Epiphanes had as well. He wanted to destroy the Jews. Why? Because he was motivated by an enemy greater than him, and that's Satan. That's why when Jesus was born, those baby boys that were murdered, they were, gunning, they were gunning for Jesus at the very beginning. And that wasn't man's thoughts. That wasn't man's plan. That was the enemy orchestrating that stuff, right? Whispering in the ears of like, hey, you know what you should do? You should do what Pharaoh did to the Israelites. Kill those babies. Kill the babies. All those plans will fail because uh, nobody's plan is going to come before God's plan. His plan wins in the end, um, and that should bring comfort to all of us. He's in such control. He's in so much control that he's even in control of, this might excite some of you, the dice. Okay? You're like, really? Um, Let's go to Vegas, Um, right? Like James said, Pastor James said, well, just he may be in control of the dice, you know, keeping you from getting snake eyes or anything else, right? Like just making you bust all the time, okay? So uh, he's maybe saving you from something else. But verse 7, it says, so in the month of April, and again, that's Nisan, that's N I S A S A N. that's Nisan, that's the equivalent of that is, is April, okay? Just so you know. New Living Translation gives us the months that we're familiar with. But it says the month of April during the 12th year of King Xerxes reign, lots were cast in Haman's presence. The lots are called Purim. Okay, so that's where we get that term, Purim, to determine the best day and month to take action. The day that was selected was March 7th, a year later, nearly a year later. It wasn't exactly because we're already in April, right? So in about a year's time, that's when the execution of all these Jews was going to take place. So they had basically 11 months, give or take a few days, to plan out how to murder thousands upon thousands of Jews. And it's fascinating that, see, God was in control of those lots. They could have cast those lots, those dice, and I call them dice, they weren't technically dice, but, and have them show up like, okay, three months later. But no, God has it all worked out to where it's like, no, it's going to be a year, a year from now. Why? Because he's doing stuff. And that's, this is all part of his plan. Haman thinks it's part of his plan. You have no plans. You have plans, but they won't succeed, right? Because God's will will happen. That's just how it goes. And it's, and it's wise for, especially for believers, it's wise for you, according to the Proverbs, to plan your days. To plan, plan, plot out the course, plan, right? But at the end of that, you have to surrender to the fact that God's will must be done and God's will will be done. It's smart. It's, it's a good decision. It's a good idea for us to make plans, but ultimately to surrender those things to the Lord and to his will being done. So they got plans. They got a date now, right? So Haman approached King Xerxes and said, there is a certain race, A certain race of people scattered throughout all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. This is hinting at Mordecai, okay? So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. If it pleases the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed." And I will give, I personally will give, 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government. Yeah, yeah, the IRS is like, really? Bring it on, yeah. um, Yeah, the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury.
0: God is the God of the unexpected. He takes impossible situations and flips them on their heads to make a way for his people. The book of Esther is a sparkling example of how God moves in unexpected and miraculous ways, like Haman, who made a gallows for Mordecai but ended up hanging on them himself. Things looked pretty bleak for the Jews of Esther's time, right up until everything changed. When you look at all of the impossible things in your life, remember that there's a God who is greater than every situation that you've ever faced or ever will face. And after he's flipped your impossible situation on its head, it'll be your turn to celebrate and remember the greatness of our God. You've been listening to Bread for the Broken with Pastor James Grizzle. This is a ministry out of Calvary Galveston in Galveston, Texas. If you're around, we would love to see you Sunday morning at 10 or Wednesday evenings at 7. Our services are pretty laid back, so come just as you are. And if you can't make it, you can always head over to Facebook and find our live stream. If you're looking to donate to a worthy cause, consider Bread for the Broken, where we help people find hope and new life in Jesus. You can find donation information as well as messages and more on our website at breadforthebroken.com. Once again, that's breadforthebroken.com. Well, we're out of time. We hope you found new hope in today's message. We loved being a part of your day, and we'll see you right here again next time on Bread for the Broken.